Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Experience Podcast with your host, Chris Quinn. I'm Dom DeTola. And we're just going to get right into it. Um, our topic today is Payne Stewart, the golfer that was tragically um, killed in a plane accident in 1999. Yeah. It, it's one of the uh, most iconic moments that I remember from my sports watching childhood. Yeah, I mean, it was all over, you know, that was when cable news was kind of first taking off. Yep. It was just like on every channel when yeah. he tragically passed. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was definitely my favorite golfer when I was growing up just because of his style. Oh, man, not only his, like, wardrobe style, but just his golfing style. And his and his attitude towards other golfers. You can kind of see some of those guys get kind of into their own shit kind of yeah. stuff. And he was definitely one of the... One of those golfers that just was not pretentious. No, you know? no, he was kind of. Pain ran with everyone. Yes, in like Payne a very ran with everyone. Clickish sport. Yes, like nobody had bad things to say about him. Like kind of someone who was well revered throughout the game, and someone who his peers definitely respected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get started. Just uh, him in a younger age. Uh, his dad was a golfer. His dad was a played, I think, in the '55 U.S. Open. So that's how he got into golf. Yeah, Bill Bill Stewart. Yep. Um, great golfer, uh, Springfield, Missouri. Um, has pain. Uh, January 30th, 1957. I mean, kind of had to raise a family. Yeah. And could not live his golf dreams and wasn't one of those dads who was like super into pushing his kid, but saw the talent. Family was part of a country club there in Springfield, Missouri, and just got him golfing. I feel like that was before parents really pushed because they kind of just let their kids play a bevy of sports and kind of yeah. saw what they were more into um, and then kind of pushed them into that. As opposed to nowadays where you have parents who are just like, my kid's only going to play golf. And you're like, uh, okay, does he like golf? Like, <laughs> no, he doesn't like it at all. Put all of your eggs in this basket, and when they fail, unleash your wrath upon them. <laughs> exactly. I, oh, man. But no, like he, like, like I was saying before, though, is like as a kid, you're at the country club all the time. Your dad is a pro-level yeah. golfer. You want to spend time with your dad. What are you going to do? You know, he picked it and picked right. I mean, yeah, he played he definitely... other sports growing up and was good at them, but, you know, golf was kind of where it was at for him. Yeah, definitely. He, he uh, had some, like, he didn't get his card right away, which I feel like is a lot, happens mm -hmm. to a lot of golfers. When they first try for it, they almost go to Asia or Europe for a year or two and kind of... Kind of like a minor league system exactly. almost, you know. You know, professionals, but not at the top level. Because, like, even in college, like, he was a hotshot recruit for yes. SMU. And he underperformed his first three years. And then really, kind of after his dad, because his dad apparently just knew how to push all the right buttons with him to like motivate him and not like in a sick way, like living through your child way, but more of a like, I'm your dad and you're not living up to your potential way. Well, I, what I was thinking when they brought that up was he was like a professional, his dad, and he saw what it was to be a professional. Exactly. And he tried to lay that in to him like, hey, if you really want to make this happen, like these are the steps you need to take. And he went and did it his senior year. I mean, yep. you know co-southwest conference golfer of the year you know that type of thing and started actually winning tournaments um in college and because he had been just kind of like at college for college you know partying the frat lifestyle that type of thing and you know got his stuff together i feel like that happens a lot especially in golf where they're just like well i'll take this last year pretty serious because the first you know three years are just like i'm in college man like let's yeah. let's live it up yeah like don't let my game slip too much yeah exactly <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so then he got his card after like a year in, I think it was the Asian tour. Yeah, he, um, like he won the 81 Indonesian Open yep. and really impressed. Uh, that's actually where he met his wife. His wife's Australian. Yeah, I thought that yeah. was interesting. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. She was on vacation and they both met and, you know, married him, married to him until the day that he tragically passed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to fast forward and get right into the into the 99 US Open or do you want to get into his older majors? I want to talk about that first the, 80, the first 87 tournament in Orlando that he won that big one oh, okay. it was they they held the tournament he had moved down to Florida cuz you can golf year round there. Yep. And uh, do a lot of other weird things in Florida year round, but golf is golf is pretty Maine. safe. Yeah. 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 But uh no, he he won and um the golf course um his home was facing the 12th hole of the golf course. So yep. he got to hug his wife and his kid who were just at home during the whole thing. Was that the one where his dad got to see him win? Uh that was the 84 Quad that Cities. 84. That was the first one. Okay. But yeah, 87 was like a really big one, not like a major, but like a super big one in yeah. Orlando. Yeah, one of those uh non-major majors. Yeah. I I can't imagine how much money that would be bringing in for him. That's one of those things where golf's money started to really explode in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, there was a great story with Jack Nicholas in the uh, Ryder Cup where they were losing, and Nicholas was like a captain, and Payne wasn't having a really good day. And this is kind of before the majors started coming for Payne, yep. and money's rolling into golf, and Nicholas, you know, he doesn't tolerate losing. You know, one of the arguably the greatest golfer ever, and yeah. he says, you win all this money, but you don't win shit. <laughs> like, and it's true though. Yeah, it's especially true. at that time, he wasn't he wasn't winning, and he was what people thought was underperforming. Like, yeah, he would have leads or he would have good days, and then Sunday he would really have bad days. And you know? and the worst part was everyone was pulling for him. It was almost like Phil Phil Mickelson before he broke through. Everyone exactly. was like, "Come on, this is a likable guy. We want you to win." And you know, it's just not happening. Like nobody's rooting against him. Yeah. I feel like the average fan was rooting for him because of his style. And let's yeah. get into let's get into Yeah, let's style. get into his style. Because that's why I originally got into him. I think I was like 10, 11, and uh -huh. my dad would be watching golf, and I'd be like, who's that guy? Because when you're watching golf, it's literally like 40 white guys in polo and khakis, and that's it. Yeah. And here comes this other white guy. Shit, all right. But here <laughs> comes this other guy, and he's wearing um, these short, pants yeah he's wearing knickers with high socks yep with mm -hmm. i was gonna say with the pants all the way rolled up and then he would always have the the classic golf cap the uh i always call it the paper boy yeah me too yeah like the get your papers here get yes, your papers the newsy yeah newsies the newsy yeah yeah <laughs> and that's what i always and he had that style forever yeah you know, like the uh he was on the asian tour he decided to do this he had gone to a tournament and he was wearing like a red shirt with a white stripe and red slacks. And he looks around and he sees like two or three other guys wearing the exact same outfit. Yep. And it's almost a weird type of branding that he did. Oh. And, and it's not like new because it's a throwback to like the old Bobby Joneses of golf because that's what guys wore on the course. Yeah. And he parlayed that into a contract with the NFL to wear a team's colors in the tournaments of like the closest NFL team. Yep. So, I mean, like, even even as a self-promoter, not like a self-aggrandizer, but just like a self-promoter, like, hey, I'm different than everybody else. Yeah. Like, you'll notice me when I'm playing. And I feel like a lot of golfers now um, kind of try and emulate that, where they almost try and stand out from everybody else. Yeah, like Ricky Fowler like wears Ricky like Fowler. these 
acid Technicolor shirts and stuff. Yep. Like, yeah. In 2014, actually, Ricky Fowler wore the knickers. And, oh, did he really? Yeah. yeah. It, so it was the first U.S. Open back at Pinehurst okay. since he won, and he wore it on a Thursday. And the- he, he made a comment where he's just like, it was great to wear it, but I it just doesn't <laughs> yeah, feel right, right when I'm out there. And I can imagine the short pants must feel so weird when you're not used to them. Oh, like, totally. I can't even like... Or if you're wearing like a wool vest or something too, yep. like with, with your shirt. I mean, that's got to be hot and miserable, especially like if you're someone as young as Ricky Fowler and you have like nice slacks and dry fit shirts yep. and like and that's know. what he's used to yeah, yeah. And like that's the only reality that you know i mean yes. great tribute but like yeah that's what know. he said he was just like i couldn't do it another day <laughs> no. like i bet it kind of like affected his game too because it's one of those things where you get into these rhythms and you don't even think about the clothes you wear yeah it's um what's it called uh, the old sports saying just for all sports if you look good you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. Yep. And for Payne Stewart to feel good in that outfit, which quite garish, if I must say so myself, but man, that kudos to him. Like if the pimps of America had like a favorite golfer, it had to be Payne Stewart. Oh, it had to be him. <laughs> Straight up. Like if he was around now, maybe not nowadays, but 2010, he'd be definitely having that pimp cup. Oh, totally. You know, the chalice. The chalice, yes. You'd just be like, ah, oh, wonderful. Just filled with a margarita, his favorite beverage, just yep. out there at the 19th hole. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, he finally broke through, finally broke through uh, in 1989, won the uh, PGA Championship. That must have been pretty fun. First major. The, I want to talk about the Orlando one. Just, oh, okay. That must have been really fun to, because that's his home course. Yeah. You know, just winning that must have been a weird surreal event because I, I can't imagine how many times you lose on the PGA tour. Yeah. All I mean, the time. Yeah. You, it's like baseball. Yes. Like you fa- you're good. If you fail seven out of 10 times, it's even less on the PGA. I exactly. mean, granted you make bank if you finish like fifth every time. And that's kind of what he did. Yes. Like consistently throughout the mid to late eighties, that's what he was doing was finishing like s- most top 10 finishes just not necessarily breaking through yes he was high on the money list almost every year but he never winning yeah and and it's one of those things where that's what really separates these great players from good players so when he started to win people are like oh here we go Mm -hmm. and that's why i feel like happened towards the end of his career was he was really finding his like rhythm yeah he found it back yeah because yeah Oh, I was just going to say, because, you know, 89 U.S. Open, 1991 PGA, you've won two majors in a two-year span, and you only have four times a year. He went out and brought it, and then he kind of got it too much into his own head. Yes. And And I feel like this happens with golf a lot, where guys will go through ups and downs like crazy. They'll get the yips, they'll get the, you know, whatever. It's such a... It's such a mental game compared to other sports. Like, I, I really dislike when people say that golf is not a sport. Like to be able to get that tiny white ball into a hole hundreds of yards away and to have like the laser focus and self discipline to like the mechanics of a golf swing are ridiculous. And that's yeah. that's what I love the most about Payne Stewart is like if you go on YouTube, his golf swing, it's just so smooth, just so nice and easy, just a nice long drawn out swing, get the hips going, get the back foot turned. Yep. Just it's he has one of Beautiful. the best swings. He probably has the best swing of his era. One of the best swings ever. Like, 
if you wanted to make a, like they always say Jerry West is the NBA logo. Mm -hmm. Like if you made an in motion logo for the like professional golf, Payne Stewart would be at or near the top of the list. Yes. Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our sports experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here. And uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. I always think of uh, Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing. Yes. You know, like, oh, man. It's one of those things where even if you're not into baseball, you're not into golf, when you see it, you're like, that looks pretty. Yeah. Like, there's something about that that's just completely fluid. Like, it. His swing, and this is what I love about the YouTube was this was right at the at the era of the celebrity or these sports celebrities putting videos of themselves up, and you yeah. literally have him Payne Stewart talking through his swing. Yeah, and like there's old video of him I, someone uploaded for that. And I it's love so it. cool. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you wouldn't get that from the from the golfers of the '70s or the, you know what I mean. So in and, this era of televised almost everything it's one of those things that i think will hold on for years and years to come yeah and like nobody can forget him either yeah. because they always remember they'll remember the outfit they'll remember the guy that was liked by everybody they'll remember the swing i mean there's just something swing, about yeah. him yeah that everyone will remember yeah that was the thing where when I was watching him as a kid, I, I didn't really understand. And my dad would always say that. I'd be like, that swing. And I would just be like, okay. Yeah. And then later on, when you start like really playing golf and you start swinging, you're like, oh, I get it. Like, yeah. I, I couldn't swing like he'd. I, I don't think I could have the constant motion that he has with it. It's yeah. like the fluid mechanics of the it fluid all. Fluid mechanics. That's a perfect way to put like, it. Like when you look at baseball, you look at someone swing like junior. And then you look at someone like Barry Bonds later in his career when he was using those maple bats and had like, you know, the Mardi Gras head, as Robin Williams used to say. Yep. His swing was just so violent. Like it was it was mechanically good and it was good to look at if you like look at it, you know, as a baseball fan. But it was like violent. It wasn't like sweet. Just yes. wasn't like junior, just that nice kind of little uppercut type thing and just, man. Beautiful. Fluid mechanics. I really like that. I feel yeah. like that's the perfect explanation for it because you know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying with Barry Bonds, he was almost attacking the the baseball, and with Ken Griffey Jr., he was almost just like, "I'm going to hit the shit out of this ball." You know? I yeah. Like my mechanics are so good, and the way the placement of my hands, the way that I have my hips going at a correct time, like because you know he could drive the ball, Payne Stewart, but he wasn't like a big masher. No. But because of the ability to have his body in line and correct like that, he could do a lot of things a lot of other golfers couldn't just based on the fundamentals of the game. And that's why I like golf a lot as a sport is the nuance. Like, yeah. You really wouldn't think, you would think like, oh, he's just going to hit it straight down the drive. And it's just like, no, he's going to set up this shot to set up this shot. To, and it's such a it's such a great sport for me. I, I love watching it. I don't know if you like, I know a lot yeah, of people yeah. don't like watching it, but I fuck, I just, I love watching it. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'll watch all the majors because that's when the best are going yep. for it. And it almost reminds like Payne Stewart swing. I like researching this. I'm like watching him golf. I'm like, this is like a Bob Ross painting. This yeah. is like a Bob Ross painting, just fluid, beautiful, just, and then suddenly you have something on canvas that's magnificent you exactly. know it's like, like you see those happy clouds up there i'm yeah. gonna chip right past them and it's gonna land three feet and you're just like all right here we go exactly yeah. <laughs>
So let's get into his 99 championship. Yeah, 99 PGA championship because at Pinehurst. This is what I US remember. Open, yes, U.S. Open at Pinehurst. Um, this is what I remember. I distinctly remember watching this um, with my dad in 99. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember watching the Saturday and the Sunday. And then he was up against Phil Mickelson. Mm-hmm. And this was when Phil was nobody. He was just like a kid. He was much. coming up. He was a hot shot. But he was, he a hot was shot. like Payne Stewart. He hadn't yeah. really won anything yet. And that kind of dogged him. And Payne was going through these series of getting fourth, fifth, third again, and losing on mm-hmm. Sunday. Yeah. And this is when he really kicked it in was this U.S. Open because he kind of had a bad – it was looking like he was going to have a bad Sunday again. Yeah. And he really had – and people say uh, his putt on 16 and mm-hmm. his putt on 18 yeah. were two of the best putts. Oh, incredible! In U.S. Open history, and and if you go back and watch them, they really are. They're everything that is hard about a golf putt is in these, like downhill. Like, yeah, <laughs> they were talking about it was just like if you barely touch it, it's going to go into the rough. Yeah, know? or like, if you if you don't hit it right, it could go one way and then another. The the greens on the U.S. Open golf courses are so ridiculously challenging. Challenging, <laughs> yeah. yes, like. It, it's one of those times in sports where it all kind of came together. Like no, he, it was he terrific. Nails his putt on sixteen, and, and Phil Mickelson misses his putt. Yeah, and then um, on eighteen, Phil Mickelson has a great approach shot, and Payne doesn't. He's in the rough. Doesn't. Yes, but his next stroke was amazing to even put him in that position for. A very challenging putt. Yeah, because out of the out of a tough rough, he put it uh, like thirteen feet or something like that. Yeah, incredibly. And at, after he does that, Phil essentially hits it, you know, five inches away from the cup for a tap in, mm-hmm. and he has to sink this to win. And it's one of those images in my mind that hopefully will stick with me forever. But him sinking that putt and celebrating, I was just like, oh god, that's sports for me. And it was on Father's Day. And it was and on there, Father's I, Day. I had uh, saw this in a um, saw this about that um, when his dad died. His dad died shortly after his uh, first major one. Yep. And he wrote a list of tips and a list of strategic type of things before he died on a piece of paper and gave it to his wife. And he told his wife, when you watch Payne, make sure you keep these things in mind and tell him to do that if do whatever's on here if he's not doing it. Yeah. And I guess going into that tournament, he um, she had noticed that he was keeping his head up more often than not on putts. And she had kept reminding him about that. And like from that piece of paper, because his dad always wanted to help him, yeah, um, really helped him through basically one of the best tournaments ever. I mean, most exciting, thrilling, you know, U.S. Opens. It, it makes the the win that much better that his dad from the grave helped him on Father's Day yeah. with these notes that essentially he was doing with him his whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just and his wife and his kid were there, gave him a big hug. Yeah, you know, like it's Father's Day, it's amazing. Another uh, Phil Mickelson's wife was about to give birth, and yeah, right after he won, he celebrated and then went over to Phil and said, "You're going to be a great dad." <laughs> and it was just one of those things where you could see what pain meant to these other golfers, not as like a professional, but they were all really close friends, and it, it's 
now we get into the sad part of it. Actually, yeah. no, no. Let's talk about the Ryder Cup because he did he did win a Ryder Cup. Yeah, yeah. He had the interesting thing at the end of the Ryder Cup. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So he did end up. So this was ninety nine. Ninety nine. He uh the U.S. Open, and then um, three months after that, the U.S. team won the Ryder Cup, and then. A month after that, he was actually traveling to the PGA Championship. Yep. And something happened with his plane where it depressurized. Yeah, inside. Everyone just died because of the lack of available breathability. Yeah. Available oxygen. This was something that I ended up looking more into was the reason why it got depressurized. And they still really don't. So they obviously sued the airline company. But they lost. But they lost. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I found that to be really interesting because... I remember watching all this when it was happening, and I remember everyone was so convinced that the airline was negligent. Yep. And -hmm. it turned out they really weren't. It was just something unfortunate that happened. Yeah, it was just one of those things. And, you know, during that kind of soul-searching period from 91 to 99, he really got involved uh, with the uh, Christian church Mm -hmm. and really, you know, devoted his life to it. And everyone on board the plane, you know, was you know, as involved as he was. And people would say like, nope, that was just their time. Like they, they had run the race. They had fought the good fight. And that was just an unhappy, an an unfortunate set of circumstances. Yeah. And just completely rocked the golf world. Oh, completely. Like the sports world. I, I was trying to think of another professional athlete that died literally months after um like because this is essentially like a world series championship a major win yeah. even though there's four of them it's less likely for a golf, golf golfer to win one so that's why i feel about it so it's like i can't even really think of another the only one i can compare it to is uh clemeni after he got his three thousandth hit on the last day of the season oh and yeah and died, died in, in the plane, plane crash, plane crash in Nicaragua. Yeah. yeah he was trying to get food and aid after like an earthquake i think yeah and yeah, he he died. That's why, like, when you look at the record books, he's at three thousand, which makes it even more special. Special, but it's like it's almost a fatalist mentality. It's like he reached the almost unreachable milestone, and then for whatever reason, they took him took him away. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's 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 sad, but it's also one of those things where uh post pain stewart's life they've been there's they've been doing a bunch of great things with like foundation with him they yeah. have they have a pga award for um people that or pga golfers that um do a bunch of charity and charitable work and so they have a bunch of pain stewart stuff but it's definitely sad that he was taken so early and he was taken in this time where his career was in this resurgence where he could have won a couple more majors Oh yeah, no. I mean, he was only he was almost 43 when he died. Which some say that's when golfers really hit their second peak. Yeah, no. I mean, he could have had another 10 years of competitive golf in him, maybe challenge Tiger, who knows. But he'd still be playing on the senior tour at the very least now. Yes. Like it's and he'd be one of those people on the senior tour that you would tune in to watch. Oh, of course. Did- like he'd bring so much pizzazz to that stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he was. He was pizzazz. <laughs> but no, just a really, really, really sad end for someone. Yeah. Because it's not like, oh, you know, he ran his car off the road and he was hammered or, you yeah, know. Yeah, it, it wasn't, he, he wasn't a selfish celebrity. No, 
you no. know, he was very he was very open and charitable. And he was tight with uh, Paul Azinger, who after his cancer diagnosis, he did a ton for him. Like all the golf community rallied around him, but he was like Payne Stewart's best friend because they were always trying to pull pranks on each other. And he's like, oh, my God, my buddy's sick. Like, yeah. And it was right after he had lost his dad. And, you know, he did what he could to help him out and just be a good friend to him. Yeah. 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 Sad. Very sad. Just wish wish I could see that sweet swing on TV again. I know, I know. <laughs> That's something that I think I'll hold with forever is that swing. Yeah. But, yeah, that's uh, Payne Stewart, everybody. I hope you uh, all enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, I want to I talk to you about a little bit uh, about us. Okay, yeah. You know, Dom and Chris. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I heard that you did an open mic last night for the first time. It's like your birthday. I know, right? <laughs> it wasn't my birthday. Your... It was someone else's birthday. Exactly. But, I mean, you went and did comedy for the first time in a month or two? Yeah, probably like two months since the unpleasantness of the last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the way it goes, man. No, it was it was good. I had a really good set. I mean, all new shit that I did and doing a lot more story bits now, which I'm finally starting to be able to write. So, I like that. Yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know, we're a couple of comedians here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the pandemic hit and all comedy stopped. So uh, yeah, it's starting up again, though. It is. It's getting revved and back rolling. I know the bar that we do our open mic at, um, they're, they back open this weekend. Oh, cool. They opened on Thursday. Cool. After a while. So I don't know. I think we're probably going to wait a month and see what happens because, you know, it lasted about a month last time. Yep. And that was sad, though, to pick up and kind of stop. Yeah. Just... That's why I didn't pick up last time because um, I, I felt like it was felt like it was going to stop. Yeah, to me, this whole pandemic, and I don't want to go on a rant here, Dennis Miller style, but like from the very beginning, what they should have just done is kept everywhere open, just mandated masks, and not to be like Captain Hindsight or anything, but mandate masks, limit capacity to a certain number of people, and just keep places open and you know economically viable. Yeah, I agree with that. Because like, you're going to show or you're not going to show. Exactly. But, you know, I think enough people will go out and support a business, any business, it doesn't matter. It's like, okay, I can't go in the store because there's 10 people in there. I'll just wait a little bit. You yes. know, I'll find somewhere next door, hang out, see what's going on, and then go in. And for comedy specifically, I feel like that could have made shows almost like exclusive. Like if, but well, I imagine it was harder for them to kick back into it with limited space because they are so used to having this assured money. You know, like yeah. they're so used to having 150 people. Friday night, one show. Friday night, second show, they have 120. Like, so I imagine it was harder for them to kind of get that dialed back down. Yeah, and I, when Arizona was open for like that month, yeah. I, was, I did guest sets at Laughs for maybe two or three of the weekends, like doing both shows. You know, they need people to fill time. And it was weird because they cut the capacity in half at the club. Mm-hmm. However, because so many people wanted to get out and about, it was packed inside. Like everything was spread out, but there wasn't an empty seat in the entire thing. And the shows were great. Yeah, I bet. Because everybody that came out, it wasn't just like, oh, I got free tickets or something. It's like, I'm going out to see a show. I'm going out to do something, something and yeah. live my life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I heard uh, 
shittier comics, but I mean, not even shittier comics, but lesser known comics who are, who are headlining were like, yeah, they were like, oh, it's a 50% ocu- occupancy. And they were like, that's great. I normally get like 40%. So uh, yeah. you guys having a 50% max, I'm into that, you know? Because people were going to come. Yeah. And that was what was kind of, it was sad because, you know, I've done shows there where they have full capacity and it's standing room basically. Yeah. And, you know, the energy is great. And the energy is great when it's half filled, but it's filled. But you just can't beat that. It just feels so good. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. So hopefully it, um, we'll come back and we'll start doing comedy again. And yeah, you guys could all see us at a town near you. See us and ask us about these famous athletes, which we've been discussing, exactly. and famous sports moments. Yeah, Maybe we'll even have some sports jokes. I got sports jokes. Yeah, I got sports jokes too, man. I, I remember the first time I went or first time I saw you, I was like, oh, shit, he's got a baseball joke too. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I wrote out this whole baseball joke. Because I remember the first time I went up, I was like, I really need a joke that is a long, like a huge chunk of time. Yeah. That I could just go into. And I remember being like, well, I'll just do baseball euphemisms. And, <laughs> and that was that. Yeah. You know? Baseball's great for euphemisms. Oh, they're the king. Yeah. And they've they've been used forever. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. No, it, uh, it's sports are a big part of society now i mean they've always been for the since 20th century on so everybody can relate to it yeah yep all right and that's the sports experience podcast um one of your hosts chris quinn at c quinn comedy i'm dom detola at detola dominic thank you all very much